0: So this is Psych 202A, Um, and uh, we're starting a new chapter, chapter 12 in the Lefton and Brannon textbook, has to do with motivation. Um, When you, when we, when you, when we... Typically, use the term motivation um, in our sort of everyday kind of dialogue. What is it that you mean when you use the term motivation? Okay. What else? Drive for actions. The will to get things done. What else? What else? When you say I'm motivated to blank, or I can't find the motivation to, what do you mean? Self determination. Um, uh, Self determination. Okay. Ex- okay, good. Excitement. Or. Anomie. Ah, that's a good word. What else? What else constitutes motivation? When you talk about motivation in your. Maybe sometimes punishment or, uh, okay. So, seeking reward, avoiding punishment. We'll see how that's related, but not necessarily the same. What else? Good. So a desire to whatever. Good. Yeah. The reason. Reasoning for action. Okay. What else? Anything else you want to throw in there? A motive. It's like when you hear about police reports, they say there was a motive for the crime. That's kind of that idea of reasoning. Yeah, what else? Good point. It's very intangible. It
1: can be um, I mean, if it's a positive thing. It can be very, I mean, it can be very positive and very negative.
0: Okay. It can be um, very positive and very negative. You can be motivated to do horrible things like the um, shooting um, mass murder this week. Okay, so it can be used to justify inaction. Yeah, good. Um, But let's get back to the idea of intangibility. Um, Out of these things, um, what can I observe in your behavior? Any outward action you do. But among these, there aren't many of them that, constitute any kind of external behavior, right? They're very internalized. And that's one of the fundamental features of motivation is that um, it's an internal state. And the only way we know about these internal states of motivation is by inferring from your behavior that you are engaging in um, a motivated behavior. Okay? Okay. Um, And also, as your book points out, the definition from your book is pretty good. It says that motivation is a force, essentially, a drive that initiates, um, activates, and maintains a behavior, but most importantly, this idea of goal-directed behaviors, right? They're not just any behaviors. But they're behaviors that are directed toward fulfilling some goal some desire, so you know you guys picked up pretty much everything in here that I think is is critical in um, defining motivation, so when you use that term, you're using it generally pretty accurately at least in terms of how psychologists think about motivation okay so um now, here's a question for you. What are your motivations? And if I were to ask you to kind of brainstorm the kinds of things that motivate you to behavior, what would you list? Say again? Get a good grade. Okay. Oh, not a good marker. Get rid of that one. Yeah, what else? Approval, okay. What else? Money. Oh, hold on, what's that? Growth and entertainment. entertainment. Growth, entertainment. Okay, good. What else? I didn't hear that one time. Pain, oh, okay, sure. Yeah, sure. Okay, so... Um, I'll just condense that to one word. What else? What's that? Achievement, good. Okay, interesting, i are coming up with some interesting ones, what else? Satisfaction, Satisfaction. sure. Duty, okay. Primarily duty to others. Say again? Reputation. Reputation. So, um, your um, status among others. Okay, revenge. Sure. Absolutely. Revenge is a motivator. What else? Anything else you want to throw up there? Those are a lot. Um, let's see how they fit into um, how psychologists think about basic kinds of motivators. Um, when we think about uh, motivations, we'll think about them in certain categories. So, for example, belongingness or belonging is a motivation that motivates us to seek out social uh, groups and to seek out social approval, right? So, um, belongingness, we could put under this one, approval, um, uh, contentment, achievement, no, well, uh, duty to others, yeah, status with others, sure, um, right? So, um, achievement is another motivation. Achievement here. Good grades is achievement. Um, Money might be considered an achievement. Um, Growth, I guess you mean sort of personal growth. I'll skip that for now. Entertainment, happiness, pain, revenge isn't an achievement. Well, maybe it is. This is definitely an achievement. Um, Moral beliefs, satisfaction, you achieve satisfaction. I suppose um, you might even put achievement under revenge, <laughs> yeah, yeah, the the dark side of achievement, and achievement probably could be considered part of personal growth too. Um, uh, a couple of others that we talk about that don't really fit in here, um, so um, hunger, nobody talked about hunger. Yeah, some very basic biological motivators. Um, sex is a motivator. Um, you are motivated by a desire to engage in uh, sexual behavior. Um, and in your, if you took Psych 201A, you talked about sleep in, um, uh, your chapter on consciousness. And sleep is actually a motivated behavior. It's a behavior that you want to do. Um, It's also biologically important, just as hunger is biologically important to survival, sleep is biologically important to survival. But the interesting thing about sleep is it's the uh, just about the strongest motivator that you have. Um, If you're sleep deprived for a long enough period against your will usually, You will pretty much do anything you can to um, go to sleep, which includes giving up all these other motivations, all these other motivated behaviors, um, because sleep is so strong of a motivation. And that's why it's sometimes used in, uh, for example, in police or military interrogations. Um, It's used as a motivator to get people to do something you want them to do, to talk, to give you information, whatever it is. Of course in a sleep-deprived state the information you're coming up with probably isn't particularly lucid but um, it may be useful. Okay so um, motivations then essentially drive us to take care of our basic biological needs uh, but also our social needs. Um, So, for example, if you're hungry, you're going to go seeking out food, right? If you're thirsty, you're going to go seeking out water. Um, And if you're lonely, hopefully, you'll go out seeking um, social support. Um, Now, these are all, you know, we sort of consider this in the context of relatively normal behaviors. You know, like when we study psychology, we study uh, behavior in the general context there are always um, situations or people where these um, motivations aren't going to be the case. Um, But for the most part, um, human beings respond to these um, kinds of needs um, very strongly. Uh, So that's kind of the deal. Uh, Motivations are a drive and they help us to meet needs. Um, have you heard the term needs in the context of psychology before? Anybody
1: here? A
0: hierarchy? Yeah. Maslow's... Good. Yeah. Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Yeah. Um, Abraham Maslow was a... Um, a theorist, a psychologist and a theorist, psychotherapist, and um, he was interested in helping his clients to, um, uh, in in the best way possible, to achieve their most fullest potential as human beings, right? So his idea is that um, at the very pinnacle of our development, we are in a state of what he calls self-actualization. And we have a need to self-actualize. Self-actualization is a very um, complicated concept but basically um, Maslow describes it as a person who has um, given up their bless you, given up their self-consciousness, given up their um, sense of sort of individual importance and has achieved a sort of state of being where they feel as if they are at the pinnacle of their human achievement. And um, this theory is developed in the 1950s and um, 1960s. Um, And it really is part of the the broader movement called um, humanistic psychology. And the humanistic uh, perspective says when we think about people, we need to think about them as whole human beings and think about them as very complex individuals that have very um, complex sets of needs and desires. Um, So don't forget in the context of this, 1950s to the 70s, What's coming right before the humanistic perspective in terms of psychological approaches to explaining behavior? Behaviorism, good. So the behaviorism from essentially 1910s to about the, well, it really was going until the 1960s. The behaviorist perspective was that um, we can only observe observable behaviors, internal states we don't have access to, right? I can't I can't know what's going on inside your head. But I can know that if I set up a particular condition in your environment, that you're likely to engage in a particular behavior. So behaviorists, the radical behaviorist viewpoint is that what's going on inside your head is like a black box, you know, the inputs go in and the output is behavior. And all we can observe are the inputs and the outputs. What's going on here is of no concern to behaviorists. So, um, the, yeah, I I could have clipped somebody on that one. Um, The the humanistic perspective really is a response to behaviorism, Um, almost like a very strong kind of knee jerk response to this very dehumanizing Quality of behaviorism behaviorism, in its essence, is not really dehumanizing, um, but it's how it's perceived really that we're like machines and you give it something and you get something out right so the humanistic perspective says, um, no 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 no, um, yes, we are organism, yes, we do respond to our environment, but we're more than that we're thinking, feeling human beings, and so um the humanistic perspective starts to look at human behavior as more of a complex um, behavior that happens inside the black box. So um, part of that humanistic perspective um, was Maslow's formulation of um, why uh, human beings um, don't become the best possible people that they can be. Why don't more people... Become very selfless. Why don't more people become very um, uh, uh, reach the the um, the best possible state that they can in whatever occupation they're in or whatever um, social role they're in? Right. So um, what Maslow is going to say is that fundamentally this self-actualization is at the very top of a hierarchy of needs that have to be met in order for people to work on self-actualization. He doesn't exactly say that, but um, there's a little bit of an exception, which I'll tell you about in a second. So Maslow um, says, first thing we need to fulfill is physiological needs, right? You need to be able to eat, you need to be able to sleep, you need to be able to take care of your body. Um, and without that, he says, you can't start to work on the next level of needs that you want to fulfill. So safety needs, in this case, the needs to feel the need to feel secure, the need to feel safe, you know, shelter, having a place that um, is going to be uh, stable. Um, and once you establish um, safety needs, You can begin to work on uh, fulfilling your belongingness and love needs. So um, very much the um, aspect of approval, very much the aspect of social acceptance. And when you've uh, worked on fulfilling those belongingness and love needs, you can start fulfilling esteem needs. So feeling as if you are an independent person that's very competent, that's contributing and very um, worthwhile and has the respect and recognition of other people. And once esteem needs are uh, met, then you can advance to sort of taking care of your self-actualization needs, feeling as if you are the most complete and fullest human being that you can possibly be in whatever you do. Yeah, question. Um, yeah, you would think so. Uh, but it turns out no. Um, <laughs> but what here's what Maslow is gonna say. Maslow uh, in in his writing and I I If I had known we were going to talk about this today, because I was thinking we were going to be a lecture ahead of this one. I didn't bring the... I have a book that I usually read out of that defines self-actualization. And he says self-actualization isn't like a destination that we get to. It's more of a point along the way of advancing through this hierarchy of needs. And he'll say that um, people in every day, they make choices to either grow or sort of either advance or or retard, sort of advance or go forward or go backwards. And those points are opportunities to move closer to self-actualization. And so he's kind of talking about individual choices that we make every day being the essence of how we get to Um, self-actualization. Now, for example, um, when we think about people who um, were, who Maslow considers uh, self-actualized, for example, um, Gandhi, Mohandas Gandhi, right? And um, Gandhi was very self-sacrificing, but he did have his physiological needs, his safety needs, his belonging and love needs, certainly had esteem needs from the people that were supporting him and following him. So somebody like a, you know, a Messiah, like a Jesus Christ, um, even though they're experiencing this incredible um, self-sacrifice, they still have the support of people around them oftentimes. Um, and in order to really advance and to, and to continue to work at that level, um, these needs need to be met along the way. Um, Gandhi's wife, for example, suffered greatly um, because, uh, because of the choices that he made, uh, but he still had the support of her. He still had the support of um, the, the people around him. So in a lot of ways, um, without these being met, it's very difficult to keep doing that, even if you do get to that point. Yeah. Now this isn't uh covered in your textbook at this point. It probably is going to be covered in maybe personal the personality chapter, I'm not sure. Uh but when we talk about needs, I think it's important to kind of talk about his formulation. Now, just like Sigmund Freud's theories of um the Oedipal complex, the Electra complex, um, you know, the uh, uh anal retentiveness that results from toilet training that's too strict or anal re, anal expulsiveness that results from toilet training that's too uh, loose. Um, those theories are very unprovable. They're, they by themselves are not very open to operationalized variables, for example. It's hard to operationalize some of these things like self-actualization to actually test them empirically as scientists. But what the um, hierarchy of needs is useful for usually is generating hypotheses maybe in other areas of psychology. For example, um, in conflict resolution, we think about the hierarchy of needs in terms of are the needs of individual uh, parties in a negotiation being met fully? Are their safety needs being met? Are their esteem needs being met? Is something keeping them from kind of advancing in the in the process? So. So it's still useful for generating uh, hypotheses, even though it's probably not very uh, scientifically provable itself. Other questions on this stuff? Yeah. yes yes babies um babies will not thrive without um, without attention without physical human contact yeah um and i don't know the i don't know the that exact research um but yeah i do know that that it's a huge it's a huge problem for babies they need that uh contact they need that stimulation um and i don't know if how they you know, what this form of death is or whatever, but yeah, it's true. And so that's a good, that's a good illustration of how important it is to have this stuff met. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah.
0: both. Yeah, sure.
2: Uh, have, you, have you read Flowers for
0: Aldrinon? No, no, Flowers for Algernon, I haven't read it now.
2: Uh-huh, is, um, slow. uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Um, and whether that is even um, whether that is even a physical physical um, situation too. Yeah. I and mean, whether this deals with physical situations. Yeah. And you know, it's not just um, if it's not just conceptualized. So this is just, right. conceptualized, or just um, or this is
0: also physiological. Right. Um, y- um, yes, it is both. Um, and it would be interesting to do a literary analysis of that in the context of um, of the hierarchy of needs. Yeah, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you're thinking cross-disciplinary. Yeah. Okay. So um, now we made this list of um, motivations. What about these things that we didn't really classify as motivations—entertainment, um, ha- happiness, pain, um, contentment, moral beliefs. Um, one of the one of the issues that kind of comes up with um, motivation is how does motivation differ, for example, from operant conditioning? So, um, assuming you took 201A, you learned about operant conditioning, which is the um, the idea that contingencies in our environment affect our future behavior. So, when we are reinforced by something in our environment, we will engage in the behavior that immediately preceded the reinforcement more likely in the future. Um, will be less likely to engage in behaviors that immediately precede a punishment, right? So um, operant conditioning kind of says, well, um, that's how we learn behaviors and that's why behaviors persist. So how would you make any distinctions between motivations and operant conditioning or learned behaviors? Is, you know good grades, getting good grades a operantly conditioned behavior you think? Is um, seeking out entertainment an operantly conditioned behavior? Yeah, maybe. Um, I mean you might think of these as stimuli, um, pain as a stimulus that's a punish Punishing stimulus. It's an undesirable stimulus if you apply it. It's a punisher, yeah. I think you can I just kind of happiness that a lot of the motivations are out there would lead to those things as I mean that maybe that those would be more kind of like self actualization, I guess. Okay. But uh, they're kind of
1: at the top, I would think. I mean okay. most
0: Mm -hmm. So they get some reinforcing consequence from the money. Okay. So it's a learned behavior to seek after money, maybe. Okay, good. Um, Yeah. Uh, The money and the good grades grades lead to a job that gets money. Good grades lead to a job that gets money, okay. Um, So the money is a... Reinforcer for getting the job, right. or for getting the good grades. Right.
2: That's the reason for getting the job, and mm-hmm. a reinforcement for getting the grades. Then you think about what's the money for? Mm-hmm. Um, like the money is used for buying things or uh, <laughs> giving you the peace of mind sure. so that, that you uh, that you're safe.
0: Okay, um, so that could help meet your safety needs, for example. Right. Now, um, so let's turn this a little bit on its head. Then, um, uh, why were you why were you motivated to Why are you motivated to get out of bed in the morning? There's fun stuff to do. So, those fun things that we do are reinforcing. So they reinforce the behavior of getting out of bed. So getting out of bed is a learned behavior then, maybe?
1: <laughs> okay. Okay. Okay.
0: So there's a learned part of it that if you don't get out of bed, there
1: you'll, you'll be hungry and you'll
0: experience punishment. Right. Okay. Okay. Uh, but now what about somebody like, for example, my mother who, you know, I talked to her and um, I'm a bit of a night owl. And I'll go through sometimes periods when I do a lot of work and sleep a little less and periods when I sleep more and do less work. And so I'll call her in the afternoon and I'll say, you know, hey, mom, um, how are you doing? She'll say, what are you up to? i say, well, I just got out of bed. And she'll say, oh, that's great. she say, I would love to be able to stay in bed, but when I'm in bed in the morning, I just can't. I just have to get up and do things. So there's this real, for her, you know, it may be conditioned, but there's this real sense of drive, energization, force to, that sort of gets her out of bed, whether or not there's something waiting for her that she's um, conditioned for, yeah.
1: Could
0: be personality,
1: okay. Okay. Okay.
0: Okay. Um, it goes back to choices then? You have the choice to stay in bed or get up. Well, actually, she doesn't, but okay. <laughs> she's retired, she so mind. she doesn't do much during the day. Um, so, yeah, yeah. So, um, so now, uh, okay, so we've gotten, we sort of talked a little bit about motivation, talked a little bit about conditioning. What about um, instinct? Where does instinct fit into all this? Okay, so you have physiological needs which are instinctive right. to fulfill those needs is, is instinctive. And so you would actually, you would have to, um,
2: you would have to get out of that to, to prepare the bills or, um, or to make the
1: money that will bring in the food. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: Okay. So is tending the fields an instinctive it's behavior then? It's a learned behavior. That's a learned behavior, okay. It's a learned behavior because you need to
2: you need, you need to be
0: the hardest thing for crops to grow. Right. So in the okay. So what might be instinctive then?
1: Mm-hmm. Children get up and, or children that I've like so they want to get up really early because they're curious. Children, they want
0: to grow. children get up really early because they're curious. They want to learn. They want to explore their world. They want to yeah. do all these things. They want to get together with other kids and play. So they've got these, you know, these motivations for, mm-hmm. these motivations for belongingness and achievement and that kind of thing. So, you would say it's human nature? Yeah. Okay. Yeah? Well, I think um,
1: going to a basic, basic point of our basic needs of food, water, shelter, those kind of things. So, you have
0: to wake up in the morning to go pee, and you have to (laughs) go find food, and you have to, you know. Right. So, So there are sort of basic behaviors we engage in, you know, like when our bladders fall, we go. Empty it when we're hungry we go seek out food, right? So. Um, there's also a drive so, in human nature being social
1: animals that we are to seek stimuli and Okay. And then, and then I think that we a lot of times so much of our behavior is learned just because it is so a new mother from day one of when she was a child that her parents probably told her, no, nope, you can't stay in bed all day, you got to mm-hmm, do something. Mm-hmm, and it's
0: So those conditioned behaviors, if they're conditioned long enough, um, they do become what looks like sort of as you say second nature or human nature um, yeah
1: David. Okay.
0: Okay. Now, um something for example that's classically conditioned like a reflexive behavior. That looks very instinctive, right? So, um if you're if you were in my 201A class, um you were c- uh, classically conditioned to salivate in response to me playing a harmonica tone, right? Um, and so, um, my playing a harmonica tone and your salivation almost seemed instinctive. It came out of nowhere, presumably, but it really did come out of this period of conditioning. So, it's, it's hard to separate the stuff. The lines between conditioning, motivation, and instinct are very difficult to, to draw those lines. But let me give you some metrics that you can use to figure this stuff out. Probably the person who um, is most responsible for uh, talking about instinct and kind of defining what instinct is, is uh Tinbergen. And in a 1951 article, he suggests that instinctive behaviors have three characteristics. First of those is that they occur in a fixed pattern. When instinctive behaviors happen, they happen in exactly the same way every time. So uh, when I blow a puff of air in your eye, your blink happens the same way essentially every time. That reflexive instinctive behavior, right? He says, um, also, in order to be instinct, a behavior has to occur throughout the species. It can't occur in some members of the species and not other members of the species. Okay, so if I blow um, a puff of air in Julian's eye, he blinks, and David's doesn't, there's probably something going on here that's not instinctive, right? And third, he'll say, and probably most importantly, instinctive behaviors are not learned behaviors. I can teach you to blink your eye in response to a harmonica tone, but that's not instinctive. Eventually if I stop pairing the harmonica tone with the puff of air, um, the harmonica tone will lose its power as a, uh, as a stimulus. Right. So fixed pattern throughout the species and not learned. Um, And we have this tendency to try to explain behaviors by instinct, and we'll use this term. It's human nature, right? It's human nature to do that. They do that because it's human nature. Um, For psychologists, that's not good enough. If it is human nature, we want to know why. What are the mechanisms involved in it? Um, But most of the time, it's not really human nature it's a nominal fallacy that we will engage in. A nominal fallacy is a term from logic where by naming a behavior, you attempt to explain it. So by giving it a name as human nature, you're trying to explain it as some sort of natural instinctive behavior, but it may or may not be. Um, And without studying these characteristics and seeing does it occur in a fixed pattern? Does it occur throughout the species? And can it be learned? Uh, then, uh, or does it occur because of learning? Uh, then it's difficult to say that something is definitely um, quote-unquote human nature. I put that in scare quotes because it's something we don't like to use very much. Psychologists generally consider human beings to have a relatively small number of instinctive behaviors. Um, Primarily reflexes, but, um, but we do have some. So what about, for example, something you consider human nature, like eating? Is that instinctive, do you suppose? (laughs) If <laughs> you bite into an animal, you'll probably get bit back. <laughs> um, let's say bite into a vegetable, <laughs> you won't get bit back. Um, okay, so if you're hungry enough, you'll probably go seek food. So, so food seeking is probably instinctive. Um, does it occur in a fixed pattern? Do you do it the same time every time? maybe maybe not Um, yeah it's a pretty fixed pattern you kind of walk outside your cave and kind of look around in the ground and see what looks like it has berries on it and what looks like it might have roots and go dig something up Um, okay so we can say it might be sort of a fixed pattern maybe maybe not does it occur throughout the species do all of us seek out food when we're hungry, basically, yeah. Um, is it learned? Do you have to learn to seek out food? I
1: think at this point it is. Um, I, think, I mean, any mother
0: would teach her child how to. Good. Okay, so let's bring it outside the realm of adults and bring it into the realm of children because in order to know if something is... Instinctive we have to know if it's innate. Are we born with it essentially, right? These are essentially inborn behaviors and the best way to do that is to see does this happen essentially when an organism comes out of the womb, right? Now some, you know, babies don't have complete control over their muscular functions So some things they might be unable to do at birth just because they can't manage their um, their bodies quite right, but um when a, when a baby seeks food a very young baby say within a half an hour of birth how do they seek food yeah they cry they they suck right so eating that suckling is very instinctive so um it occurs in a fixed pattern babies suckle in the same way everywhere Um, It occurs throughout the species, doesn't matter about culture, you know, wherever in the world you are, geographic, and it's not learned. It happens right away. The rooting reflex is another instinctive behavior. If you touch a baby's cheek, there's a reflexive instinctive behavior that will cause it to turn its head in the direction of the cheek that's touched. The presumption, of course, is that there's a nipple there that's going to have food, right? So we do have some of these instinctive behaviors and the easiest thing to do is kind of study them in very young children. But as we develop muscular control, there are some other behaviors that are relatively instinctive that emerge. But things like you would think, um you would think something like eating for example, you know, the act of putting something in your mouth and chewing it is probably instinctive, but is it really? Don't I don't know how many of you are parents. Did your children know how to chew themselves? You have to teach them you have to encourage them to chew food right otherwise they'll just kind of uh they'll probably try to swallow it and choke right um so just that act of chewing is even um something we consider human nature it really isn't human nature. okay, I got a couple of questions um one in the corner and then we'll go. Sure, sure, so um if you're scared and the startle response, does it happen in a fixed pattern? do you pretty much everybody startles the same way? Um, maybe the stimuli will be different, which kind of stimuli cause you to be startled? Does it occur throughout the species? probably, um, and it's probably not learned. It happens pretty young um, the um, uh yeah, so that's a good example, yeah other questions on this I kind of beat it up pretty bad already so maybe we'll move on so what's the what's then the ultimate goal of um, motivations he said that motivations energize and direct our behavior for goal-seeking, uh, goal seeking direct goal-seeking behavior um, why do we engage in food-seeking behavior when we're hungry? What do we want to do? We want to survive, but in a shorter term, not be hungry anymore. Um, presumably, most of us are in a state right now, you, hopefully you've had lunch, and we're in a state right now where we're not hungry and we're not stuffed, right? We're in that kind of middle ground that kind of balance. And what's another term for balance when we talk about biology? Right, Homeostasis. And so that's really the ultimate goal in, um, uh, in motivation. Most motivations are an attempt to kind of keep us in a state of balance, keep us in a state of homeostasis. So when we get too hot, we have biological processes that kick in and we'll cool our body down. We'll start sweating. Sweat will evaporate. We'll cool the surface of the skin. There's um, a number of processes that go on and your body temperature goes down. Um, are you getting too hungry? If so, you will be motivated to engage in food seeking behavior. Go sign, find some food and eat it. And you'll get back into homeostasis, but you might keep eating too much, like I do, and um, realize you're seven-eighths of the way through that big bag of ruffled potato chips, and you go, wow, I'm really full. I guess I should stop eating now, right? I'm still not in a state of homeostasis. I'm, am, I'm suffering pretty bad, so that might motivate me to kind of get up and maybe go for a walk and kind of walk off some of the uh some of the food, let it settle, drink some water, whatever, maybe go throw up. No, I don't, I do not engage in purging behaviors. Don't recommend it. Um, so yeah, so these are ways, these are motivations to kind of mostly keep ourselves in a state of homeostasis. And homeostasis is a good thing because um, that's when we're functioning optimally. Any other questions before we take a break? Okay, Um, it's about 4 so uh, let's take a break until 10 after 4 and I'll see you back here. back after a break. So um, we'll spend a little bit time the next uh, 40 minutes or so talking about um, a couple of specific motivations, um, hunger and sex. Um, Two motivations that at some point we're all going to encounter. Most of us all of us have experience with hunger and probably most of us with uh, sex. So, um, and if not engaging in sex, certainly the motivated drive for sexual um, activity. So, um, two of the stronger uh, motivated behaviors along with sleep. And as we talk about each of these motivations, each of these motivated behaviors themselves, will talk about them in the context of physiological aspects, but also psychological aspects, because they have both aspects to them. They are biologically and physiologically important functions um, and strongly driven by biological uh, processes, but they also have psychological components to them, too. So we'll talk about that. So each of those in turn... The physiology of um, hunger. When you're hungry, um, where do you feel it? Where do you feel hungry? In your stomach. Good. Um, yeah. So, um, stomach sensations, bless you, are, are one signal. Of, um, my fiance, when she sneezes, she, um, generally sneezes four times. And so I get, you too? Fifteen <laughs> times in a row? Wow. I sit there and count it every time he does. Yeah, it. yeah, yeah. I say you're break
1: your record two more. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's hilarious.
0: I don't know what that's about, yeah. My grandma always
1: said, um, like she'd say, bless you, bless you, bless you, and then on the fourth time she'd say, go to hell, you're getting a cold. <laughs>
0: Wow. (laughs) Um, Okay, anyway, yeah, stomach sensations. (laughs) Um, You know, uh, sneezing is a biologically motivated behavior to rid ourselves of some kind of irritant. Um, Stomach sensations are one signal of hunger and satiety. So we can be full from eating or we can be hungry and feel it in our stomach. But... um, As you say, the stomach really isn't the whole answer. Um, And what's interesting is if we study animal behavior, for example, in rats, uh, there've been some research studies that have removed the rat's stomach and essentially connected the esophagus to the intestines. Um, Your digestion primarily happens in your intestines. There's very little actual digestion that occurs in your stomach. Um, stomach acid is typically for more useful for um, sterilizing food than starting to break it down. Uh, the enzymes that break it down are um, secreted uh, and, and used in the intestines. So um, we can remove a rat's stomach, and do they keep feeling hungry, and do they keep eating? Yeah, it turns out they do, and what we find is that brain function is part of the answer to hunger, why we're hungry or why we're full. Uh, So what we find is that um, in the hypothalamus, for example, if we stimulate the hypothalamus, um, we take an electrode and electrically stimulate part of the hypothalamus, um, animals will engage in food-seeking behavior as if they're hungry, right? Uh, those same animals, if we lesion the hypothalamus, if we damage the hypothalamus, we'll get a different kind of response to food, which is food aversion behaviour, so it'll be as if they're sated and they'll not wanna be um uh eating food so um so there's something about the hypothalamus that's important from chapter three two, two or three, three in um, the uh, uh, Lefton and Brannan book, you talked about neuroscience. What else do you associate the hypothalamus with or what kinds of general functions do you associate the hypothalamus with? Do you remember? No, you're thinking of the cerebellum. Um close, what's that? So, so one of the ideas was emotion and fear. It's part of the limbic system, which is associated with emotion and fear, but the hypothalamus has a specific function. Sexual yes, um, sexual behavior is part of it. It's connected directly to the pituitary gland, which is um, the master gland for reproduction. Um, but also another important part of the hypothalamus is bodily regulation. So the regulation of bodily functions. So this regulatory aspect of the hypothalamus comes out in terms of how you respond to food. It's going to help control your responses to food. Um, So do you eat just to feel full? No. Why? Why do we eat? Pleasure, but... Also, because when we don't eat, we find out that we don't have the energy to do what we want to do or, worse yet, respond to a predator that's about to eat us instead, right? So so energy is a big part of the picture, too. And where are we getting the energy from? Glucose. Glucose. And glucose comes from food. Um, So here's the deal. How does your body regulate how you use glucose? Those of you who might have taken biology. Cellular respiration, respiration. good. Um, Any particular chemicals that aid that, do you remember? Insulin, Insulin. good. Yeah, primary one that I'm thinking of is insulin. When you um, eat food and your blood sugar goes up, your pancreas is going to release insulin. The insulin Helps facilitate your cells to use that glucose, right? And so, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, well, high, high blood sugar isn't necessarily a bad thing unless you can't, um, produce a sufficient quantity of, uh, Insulin. If you produce too little insulin, then it doesn't have the 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 capability of um, Effectively delivering that sugar to your cells and so you feel crappy right But um, if you have sufficient insulin that your cells are getting enough glucose the extra glucose in your blood really doesn't matter that much. Yeah So um, when your cells are receiving adequate glucose, you're feeling fine. All right. Um, High glucose leads to higher insulin production, which facilitates cellular use of glucose. One of the problems we have, at least in American society, is obesity. And there's a connection now um, between motivated hunger and obesity. Um, but also between obesity and insulin and glucose. Um, So there are a number of reasons why we experience an obesity problem. We should normally be functioning so that we get hungry, we eat, we return to homeostasis, and everything's fine. But for some of us we eat and we eat and we eat, or we eat and we feel okay, but we keep picking up weight, and we're not sure why. So um, there's a couple of ideas on this. For one thing, people with um, obesity, clinical obesity, tend to have um, higher insulin levels in their blood. And um, if the insulin levels are too high, what winds up happening is the food energy, the glucose, winds up being stored as fat. And that because that glucose is rapidly being uh, taken out of the blood and stored as fat, you wind up feeling, uh, you wind up with lower uh, blood glucose levels. And blood glu- low blood glucose levels will trigger a hormonal secretion, uh, ghrelin. You read about that in the textbook. Um, among them is ghrelin. And those hormones are going to tell you that you're hungry. And so you're going to be hungry again sooner, even though, um, you know, you're eating a normal amount. It's because that uh, that glucose is being converted into fat cells and it's not available to your other cells to use as well. So you need to eat more and that creates all kinds of problems. That's one um, hypothesis. Uh, as you read in the uh, in my blog, those of you who are reading the weblog, um, you noticed that um, there's another, uh, there's interesting study in there about um, uh, whoops. I'm getting a little bit flashy here with you. My, uh, shirt has come open. Okay, that's better. We're going to be talking about sex later, so I don't want to make any confusion here at all. Um, okay, so, um, where was I now? Oh boy, I'm totally gone now. Uh, oh yeah, the weblog. Um, there's a, there was an article in the uh, Chronicle of Higher Education written by a couple of researchers who did a study on um, portion sizes and overeating. And um, they did a naturalistic observation study where they took a bowl of M&Ms and put it into a lobby of an apartment building. And in one condition, they put it next to a um, like a quarter cup measure, you know, and the sign that says, you know, help yourself and in the second condition they put it next to a measuring that was like a tablespoon or two tablespoons or something and said you know help yourself and they found that in the condition where people had a quarter cup measure they ate more of the M&Ms even though they could have with the tablespoon measure taken multiple servings right so um portion size actually has an effect and one of the hypotheses about how um the French Uh, nationally have a lower um, incidence of obesity even though their food tends to be um, higher in fats and one of the um, hypotheses why that is is because when you go to the store in France and in most other European countries um, you don't find um, you know a gallon size of yogurt you find, you know, a little six ounce container, right? And just the aspect of um, in American society where we've gone to these sort of huge, um, you know, family size kinds of um, servings that that encourages us to eat more because it's available. Um, That the size of the container actually acts as a control on our um, eating behavior. Yeah, uh, David. So there's certain cultural expectations, family expectations that you'll finish your complete serving. Yeah, good. And that may translate into if you're given later on, if you go to the store and buy the jumbo size bag because it's less expensive, you're going to consume more of it, yeah. A um, couple questions here. Hold on. I if that's like, just a big after the Right. I mean, that's I a good
1: know, question. I mean, like my grandparents so they yeah
0: yeah so what are the effects of historical events like the depression on um, consumption behaviors plus the um, shift right the shift in um, the the real restructuring that happened probably after world war ii in food packaging and distribution systems right we went to a huge national food distribution system away from more localized distribution systems and uh and that'll have big effect here. Yeah. So, yeah, so there's all these factors in obesity. So we can't narrow them down to just these things. But there are some other biological indicators that tell us that obesity may be a biological uh, process. For example, neurotransmitters, there are two of them that are under study right now, neuropeptide Y and polypeptide double Y. And what we find is that people with uh, eating disordered behavior will have abnormal levels of these um, neurotransmitters. And um, what we find is people with abnormal levels of those neurotransmitters eat larger portions and they um, store more of their food as fat than uh, individuals that that have relatively normal levels of those neurotransmitters. And we also see individuals with the eating disorder, bulimia nervosa, um, with abnormal levels of these neurotransmitters. So we think there's a strong connection with these neurotransmitters and eating behavior in general, but particularly in eating obesity behavior. Um, what about our buddy genetics? We're always looking for, is there a genetic link to something or is it environmental? We kind of talked about the environmental effects, you know, portion sizes, cultural expectations, family expectations of eating, but what are the possible genetic um, influences? So evidence for a genetic influence on obesity comes from studies of adopted children. So children who are, not twins uh, but maybe they were separated at birth and adopted into separate families Um, but they are you know biologically not the family that adopted them and then also twins that were separated at birth and raised in different families and what we find is that these adopted children um, and the twin pairs those people those individuals will have more similar weight sizes than the people in their adopted families. So um, so there's a pretty strong indication there that there are at least some genetic um, influences in uh, obesity. And this effect tends to be stronger for women and it also tends to be stronger for how fat is distributed on your body. So there's a pretty good likelihood that, you know, um, if you Come from a family where fat is distributed in a particular pattern on your body, it'll on their bodies. Then you'll probably follow the same uh, or a similar pattern of uh, fat distribution. More might be distributed in your trunk, for example, versus your um, uh, hips or your thighs or your legs. Right? Yeah. Question. Um, um, the, um, yeah, there is a relationship between obesity and uh, diabetes, but I don't know what the biological uh, relationship is. But we do see, um, in obesity studies, we see individuals with obesity tend to have uh, higher insulin levels than normals. Um, and so, maybe that's a function of that disruption in the normal insulin level production. I'm not sure. You know, at some point, maybe they just start producing a lot less insulin and that causes trouble. I'm not entirely positive. David, do you have a question? Um, I've
1: watched my stepdad go through diabetes. Okay. It was never a problem. And then uh, as he slowly lost all the feeling in his fingertips and then the end of his toes,
0: peripheral neuropathy. Okay yeah yeah, diabetes is a horrible disease. um I'm sorry to hear that you have to go through that um with him uh it um yeah, it's definitely not something you want, and it is a disease that is increasing in prevalence in the United States, so um, uh, it's something to be aware of, definitely. Okay, so um, in addition to some of these biological factors, something to think about in terms of obesity is called your basal metabolic rate. And essentially, your basal metabolic rate is the amount of ca- the number of calories that you're burning in your regular sort of everyday activities. So if I were to graph out over here, the, um, basal metabolic rate here. Um, and, uh, this assumes that you're consuming a certain level of, um, calories. And this is time here. Um, and uh, there's another part of this equation. If you're consuming a certain number of calories and that caloric intake stays pretty constant, your basal metabolic rate will keep your weight at a relatively constant level. Um, and that weight that it keeps it at at that constant level is called your set point weight. right? And the set point weight is interesting because what happens is if you engage in regular exercise you will increase the set point weight right? I'm sorry, not set point weight, oops. If you engage in regular exercise you'll increase your basal metabolic rate. If you on the other hand engage in food deprivation your basal metabolic rate will decrease. So this basal metabolic rate is changeable by a couple of different factors, and exercise and food deprivation are two of them. So um, what happens is as your basal metabolic rate goes down, you're consuming fewer calories through your basal metabolic rate, and at that point, you'll start picking up weight, right? Because if you're consuming the same number of calories and you're burning less in your normal regular activity, your weight's going to go up. So you can probably see where this is going. Um, I weigh about 195 pounds, and that pretty much stays the same, right? Right? I have this kind of set point weight at about 195 pounds and it's going along here, 195. And um, my basal metabolic rate stays at the same level because I'm pretty sedentary. I don't exercise much. Uh, I walk to my car and back. That's pretty good. Right. I walk down here and back upstairs. Um, and I consume essentially the same number of calories, although when I started living with my fiance. I started consuming more because she's a really good cook. She's listening to the podcast. (laughs) So, uh, yes, I really enjoy that food. It is good. Good. That salsa you made today is really good. She makes a good salsa. So, uh, anyway, um, so at a certain point, uh, you know, I weigh 196 pounds, 95 (laughs) <laughs> really, it's 95. <laughs> so uh, I weigh 195 pounds, and I decide, you know what? Um, I really want to weigh 185, so I want to lose 10 pounds. So I decide I'm going to start eating just grapefruit. So I'm going to go on the grapefruit diet. And I go on the grapefruit diet, and what happens to my caloric consumption? goes down. And let's say this was 2,500 a day, and now we're down to 1,800. I don't know. And um, so now that I have engaged in food deprivation, it's going to decrease my basal metabolic rate right? And um, my weight's going to go down because I'm eating less calories. My basal metabolic rate really hasn't gone down all that much, so I'm going to lose some weight. That's a good thing. So I'm going to get down to, uh, whoops, I better go down a little further than that. I'm going to go down to uh, 185, and I'm feeling pretty good about that. So uh, I decide that I am going to say to my fiance, I'm tired of eating grapefruit, bring on the enchiladas. And so she starts making enchiladas. And what happens to my caloric intake goes back up to 2,500. Um, meanwhile, my um, because uh, I'm not food-deprived anymore, my basal metabolic rate is going to start increasing. But what's interesting about that is the increase never gets quite back up to where it was before. And since I'm eating more calories and I'm doing the same amount of Exercise, and I haven't changed my exercise, my weight, guess what, is going to come back up. But guess what? It's going to come up a little higher. I don't know how much higher. I'm just using numbers there. So, um, because why? See the difference between the basal metabolic rate and the calories? Basal metabolic rate and the calories. So I say, damn, uh, I'm not looking so good in the mirror, honey. I think it's time we head south. And so I'm going to go on the South Park Diet. <laughs> All right? I don't know what this South, you know. What, is, what do you eat in the South Park Diet? I don't know. Mr. Mr. Hankey. Um, so I go on this diet and, uh, so my calories are going to go down again. I'm going to go into another state of food deprivation and the South Park diets really nasty. So I'm going down to 1400. I can't even eat one of those cheeseburgers at Carl's Jr. Um, and, uh, so my, uh, basal metabolic rate is going to go down because I'm in a food deprivation again. And my uh, set point, and my weight is going to go down along with it. And I'm going to think, oh great, I'm down to 190. That's a lot better than 205. So I'm going to go back and s- start eating that chicken mole that my fiance cooks so well. It's really delicious. And um, so now, I'm off of my diet, so my caloric intake's gonna go back up to 2, 2,500. Basal metabolic rate's gonna come up, but not as much as it was before. Right? And my set point weight, guess what? So this is the famous cycle of yo-yo dieting. And this is why people who sell diet books make a lot of money. Um, Because fundamentally, we like the idea that we can restrict our caloric intake, but we don't like the idea of going out to the gym. And you really need those two things. There's no secret to losing weight, folks. Uh, but there is a secret to why you can't lose weight just on the grapefruit diet or just on the South Park. No, it's not South Park, is it? South Beach, South Beach diet. <laughs> <laughs> South Beach diet. Right, right. The South Park diet. That's Mr. Han- oh, Mr. Hanky, right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that would be nasty. I think my caloric intake would be pretty low at that point. Uh, My motivation to eat would be low too, yeah. Um, Okay, so anyway, thank you for clearing that up, (laughs) letting me hang myself. Um, So now we've got this set up for, um, you know, gaining more weight every time we come off of that diet. Um, So be sure to um, engage in exercise if you're going to try losing weight. I just decided I'm not going to try because I don't like to exercise. So. And if I do try, it's going to be to my detriment. So that gives me an excuse not even to try. <laughs> um, no, I, I actually need to. I, my doctor says I need to. So, Okay. Um, all right. Now, what about psychology and hunger? Well, If you if you subscribe to the psychodynamic model, uh, the psychodynamic model being Sigmund Freud's uh, model of what happens when our unacceptable, uh, unsocially desirable impulses you know our impulses of lust, our impulses of greed, consumption those, those um, impulses that are undesirable and that we, and sexual impulses that we don't want to acknowledge. Um, when those conflict with the super ego, they are the id and the id conflicts with the super ego, which is our socially desirable self, the self that we want to present as being ideal. And those two conflict, the ego has to manage that conflict. So the id says, oh man, you really want to eat that eight inch high chocolate cake at Fannigan's pie house on your way home tonight from work, right? Have you ever been to this place? They have a chocolate cake, I swear to God, is that high? And it's like twelve layers, and I look at it and I go, "Oh, yeah, you really want that." Um, but the superego says, "You know what um." That's not really acceptable to go in there and eat that whole thing yourself. You might want to share it with David on the way home from school today, yeah. Um, So uh, the conflict comes when the ego gets in the middle, and the ego has to mediate between those unacceptable impulses and the socially desirable self. And when it can't effectively mediate that conflict, anxiety emerges. And so, one way to relieve anxiety for some people is to engage in eating behavior. It is uh, shown to um, actually allow people to dissociate. Uh, dissociative disorder is uh, dissociative identity disorder, for example, is uh, what's known as multiple personality disorder. And dissociative disorders in general allow you to kind of um, separate from your body. And it's almost as if your experience of yourself is divided. And you've got this self, this body self, but then you've got a separate self that maybe is observing the body self and the conscious self. And so binge eating, um, one hypothesis is that it's a form of dissociation. So if I feel particularly shameful for wanting to have that chocolate cake, one way to avoid that shame is to dissociate through binge eating the chocolate cake, so yeah. So that's sort of psychodynamic stuff. As I said, Freudian theory, take it or leave it. Um, It's good for generating hypotheses, but that's about it. Um, But we also have a neurotransmitter explanation too. And what we find is that um, one of the byproducts of consuming carbohydrates in particular, like refined sugars, breads, um, especially refined breads, um, is that um, those carbohydrates will result in higher levels of serotonin, which is a neurotransmitter associated with calming. And so it's a way, presumably, that if you engage in eating of these carbohydrates, uh, you can calm yourself down. So when I get all stressed out, I'll get to that in a second. When I get all stressed out, um, you know, I can't go home at five o'clock today, and I got to stay here and mark exams or prepare your exam for next week, and uh, you know, I get out of here at 8 o'clock, and I'm hungry, and I'm um, all stressed out, anxious about whether I'm going to be able to um, do those exams okay next week, um, you know, I might stop for that jumbo bag of potato chips, and that's a big dose of carbohydrates that can give me that sense of calming, right? And I, yeah, I, I do engage in that behavior sometimes. Yeah, Question. um in 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 large enough quantities, I don't know if you if you could do it through carbohydrate consumption um, uh, for example, um, ecstasy you in two, did you take 201a? Yeah so in the chapter on drugs you learned that ecstasy um, increases the levels of uh, it it actually it actually, Stimu- simulates the presence of um, serotonin in your synapses and your body will start slowing down its natural production of serotonin and what will happen is when you come off of it, this is with long-term uh, uses of ecstasy you will come off the ecstasy and you'll experience serotonin withdrawal essentially um, and so you'll need to keep taking the ecstasy to keep your serotonin levels up I don't know if that same effect would happen with the levels that um, carbohydrates increased serotonin. I just I don't know of any research on it. So. but it's a it's a reasonable hypothesis. Yeah. I
1: think people
0: that have uh, experienced similar things with Atkins diet when they had um, in the beginning stages. Ah. Oh. So, um, so the Atkins diet restricts carbohydrates, and if you've been eating a lot of carbohydrates previously and you stop eating them, I mean, what I mean. do they describe? They go through withdrawal. Yeah, and huh. And they Interesting. Through, uh, a lot of the times in the kind of in the detox sort of period, um, I think they do go through like kind of depression and
1: stuff like that. And then afterwards, then they feel all great. But then after a long period of time, then I mean, the
0: carbohydrates fuels your your brain. A lot yeah. 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 They then have later problems. Yeah. Uh, so depression wouldn't, you know, would be understandable because um, serotonin. A dysfunction uh, is associated with depression, yeah. Now, um, the thing you have to be careful of, um, you know, there's all kinds of other stuff in those carbohydrate foods that we're eating, additives, preservatives, all kinds of stuff that seemingly could affect that. But, um, yeah, it's. Um, uh, I'm wary of uh, extreme uh, changes in diet and food and stuff.
1: Question.
0: Okay, um, thyroid problems has to do with um, metabolism. Uh, your thyroid helps uh, maintain this uh, basal metabolic rate and uh, homeostasis in your me- metabolic processes. And um, so if your thyroid isn't maintaining that homeostasis and in, in metabolism properly, then um, you're going to, if your metabolism is going too fast, it's going to be burning, your basal metabolic rate is going to be too high. It's going to be burning a lot of calories. And if you don't eat a lot of calories, you're going to lose weight. It, have, um, um, I, would sus- I would expect so. Um, you would, because it's involved with regulatory functions, it's probably, thyroid issues are probably related to hypothalamus dysfunction, which is in the limbic system, so emotional dysfunction should follow, yeah.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Okay, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised um, because it's probably connected with the hypothalamus, yeah. Um. We're going to have to finish here. Sorry. Um, We'll pick up with uh, sex. We'll do sex when we get back next week. How's that? Have a good weekend.